This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. How good is Australia? Here, here. Those opposite are all smear and no idea. Aloha and welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. Ooh, aloha. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast, joining the party from Parliament House this week where... PK, I have to say it's been a pretty willing affair on a few fronts, mainly around climate policy and targets, what's new, but another oldie bit of goldie, sports rorts. Yeah, sports rorts is really the story that keeps on giving and we're going to get into all the detail about that a little later. But there has been a huge story of the week for me and that's the climate wars which are continuing. Some people will say, is that a news story? What's new about that? Well, (laughs) On Friday last week, after we uh, recorded the last podcast, Anthony Albanese gave a pretty significant speech where he confirmed that Labor would adopt a carbon neutral target of zero net emissions by 2050. Now, to be clear, that's a policy that they took to the last election, but after being stung by the result, particularly in Queensland, Labor said they would review all policies. So we did assume that Labor would move in this direction, but then we had the confirmation and the fact that Labor were willing to commit to it. Labor made this decision and have, well, uh, been attacked pretty heavily from the government for making this decision, but their argument is that all states and territories have embraced this target. 73 countries around the world have embraced this target, that the Paris Agreement around uh, climate change and reducing emissions is all about getting to this position and that it shouldn't be contentious. But either way, it's been contentious all week. And in question time on Wednesday, the Minister for Energy and Emissions, Angus Taylor, dug up a classic strategy from the playbook on this debate, going hard on historical voter, well, issues. Issues is a way of putting it on a price on carbon. Their target will require a $273 carbon tax, Mr Speaker, raising the price of electricity, the price of gas, the price of petrol, the price of diesel, slashing agriculture and other industries, Mr Speaker, a massive carbon tax. Now, Mr Speaker, it's Groundhog Day. We know how this ends. We just don't know when. When will the Australian people find out that Labor's bringing back their carbon tax? It is Groundhog Day. He's actually right about that because the debate is Groundhog Day. That bit he's right about. But Fran... There's a bit of a debate around why Labor did this. Is this an own goal? Because they've made themselves the story all week. Well, it's true. And you're right, it's Groundhog Day. And that was a scare campaign out of the scare campaign playbook, a bit reminiscent of $100 roast. Remember that? Um, Look, I don't think it's an own goal for Labor because I actually don't think Anthony Albanese had any choice ultimately but to confirm that Labor would sign on to this ambition of net zero emissions by 2050. That's always been their target. If they dropped off it, they'd be criticised from the left. So, you know, it was damned if you do, damned if you don't. Doesn't mean it's without risks, but, you know, which they suffered obviously severely from at the last election campaign. Um, I mean, you could argue they've fallen in that trap again, coming out with a target without it costing, being able to give people a sense of the cost-benefit analysis of this. But I think Anthony Albanese was right to do it. I don't agree with others in the media who think the misstep was coming out so early in the term with this target. You know, as you say, PK, everybody's doing this. The states have all got this target. The BCA's got this target. Other countries have got this target. Why not get out early and put pressure on the government that's so reluctant to even mention the word target? In my view, that's where the pressure should be falling here. I mean, the world 
unarguably needs to get to net zero emissions or we're in trouble, or as Malcolm Turnbull would say, if we don't get there, the planet will be uninhabitable and the states are apocalyptic. Politically in the short term, yeah, you're right. It's given the government some reprieve from their internal divisions. But really, seriously, I mean, I came across Michael McCormick, the National Party leader, in the corridor of Parliament House this week, surrounded by reporters, you know, pressing him to declare his position on this. And he was there piling into Labor, saying the opposition's hopelessly divided around this. Well, I mean, honestly, what a laugh. The coalition is completely divided with splits on display between the Nats and some Libs. And yet they have the sort of the gall to sledge Labor about division. So there's a sort of a false equivalence going on. I guess you could say Labor stepped into that trap and should have been able to manage it better. But in terms of whether Anthony Albanese should have declared this goal at this point, I think he had little choice. Look, every interview they did, they were pressed by people like you and I, Fran, about, well, if you, you reckon you want to do a better job than the coalition on uh, mitigating, dealing with climate change, what's your policy? Will you commit yeah. to net zero emissions? Exactly. And they'll tell you privately they felt foolish saying, oh, we can't, we're just going to be better than the government but not being able to actually say where or how. I think the flaws, though, are that... Yeah, sure, they've done the long-term bit, but it's the years coming up to 2050, Fran, that matter. How do you get there? 2030, 2035, 2040. We don't know, have any idea about the pace which they work towards. They are the big debates that Labor still has to have. Yeah, so but surely that's that can happen difficult. over time. I mean, surely they are going to have to have that, but it is one year into a term and they are the opposition and the government has nothing on that front yet. I, mean, I think what they should have had was something, some answer to talk about the costs of not doing action because there is modelling out there now that suggests that if we move towards this, it will create opportunities, it will create new jobs, well-paid jobs, um, it will make electricity cheaper because renewable energy is cheap you know, free to some degree uh, for some of it. They should have had an answer, a comeback on that, which I I don't understand that strategically at all. But in terms of whether they have a plan, I mean, they are the opposition and – you know, I think I think you can fairly argue that the opposition will come up with its plan for a you know ten year target or whatever it is, then a twenty year target. I think the pressure should be let's see what the government's plan is, and we might get the first stage of that within this coming week. Well, they say that their technology roadmap is going to be released. What that roadmap means in terms of targets and how it links to targets, that's a bit we don't know, and I think that's the most key question. You don't just have a roadmap that leads nowhere, as we were saying last week. You need to kind of know. Until we do, we just won't be sure about how committed they are. And they keep talking about, they've been talking up the fact that they have 2030 targets, 26 to 28% reduction, but we don't know beyond that and what they'll take to Glasgow and how they will position Australia. Uh, There is a door open still to them committing to zero net emissions by 2050. But I feel, Fran, that something shifted, that that door has been closing if you listen Mm. to how hard the rhetoric has been against the 2050 zero net emissions target. It's been narrowing to the point where I think it's, it's barely open at all. Yeah, and I predict that next week on the Party Room podcast we'll be talking about the government's technology roadmap and what that means and let's see if they, um, you know, throw a whole lot of resources into that. Um, PK, just before Andrew Probin, our Party Room guest this morning, I'm looking forward to that, before he arrives, I I just wanted to quickly touch on a a pretty extraordinary speech, I think, from ASIO's Director-General Mike Burgess this week. He really needs to be congratulated. He gave a, a public speech about the threat levels that ASIO is operating under, that Australia is experiencing, really 
really sort of shedding some light on what our secret agencies are doing. And on that front, he said the threat level is very high, the number of foreign spies on our soil more than at any time since the peak of the Cold War, which is quite something. He named espionage as a threat in that sense. He also said foreign Islamist terrorism remains a major threat. And then he talked about right-wing terrorists, you know, gathering groups around the country. On that front, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, then promptly condensed that into concerns about right-wing and left-wing threats. Now, PK, forgive me if I missed it, but the ASIO chief didn't talk about left-wing threats at all. So you interviewed Peter Dutton this week. What's he talking about when he says right-wing and left-wing threats? You're right about the ASIO boss, and I did press Peter Dutton about what he was referring to. And I said to him, actually, I put it to him, are you talking about Islamist threats? And he said, yeah, well, you know, you use that word and people don't like it. Yes, that's what I am talking about. Now, many yeah, people but that's have not left wing, is well, it? Well, many people have pointed out, if you look at what, you know, Islamist doctrine or ideology is all about, it's actually a very sort of extreme, um, I'm not going to put it on a left or right wing um, dimension. It's about the deep oppression of women. It's... It's extreme and, okay, some people would call it conservative. I don't even think conservative is the right word for this. I just don't think it's a left-right matter. I think the Home Affairs Minister really misspoke when he, and I'm not sure what he was trying to do really. Interestingly, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, only a day later gave a very significant speech about the rise of of anti-Semitism and neo-Nazis as well and right-wing um, groups that are organising. And I think the government is aware of these issues. Labor has been trying to press the government on um, whether it will, why it hasn't listed any of these right-wing groups, these these groups on the terror list. Peter Dutton was also asked about that by me this week, and he said we haven't been asked to by our agencies. That just hasn't been recommended to me. And he said, if it was, I would, right? Now, I think we've got to take him at face value on that. I think that is what you expect a government, you'd agree with that, to do. They don't make up their own decisions based on ideology or anything else. They just take the advice. Labor's no, asked the question. No, but if there's an issue and, and the Joint Parliamentary Committee wants to have these referrals, then obviously the government's got to do something about that glitch, doesn't it? Well, that's what Labor's saying. Let's let's review it. Let's look at it. How are we making these referrals? What are they based on? Now, I don't have the answers. I'm not an expert in counterterrorism, but <laughs> that's the... I oh, know. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Carvelis reveals she's not an expert on counterterrorism, but I think that's actually where the question is. But I think on the rules that apply, uh, the government hasn't got a referral for any of these groups and hasn't listed them. I, I think that's reasonable. You know what, PK, all this conversation there, all that effort from the government uh, around terrorism and the threat levels here, and this is, you know, in the same sort of week, 10-day period where we had a shocking domestic murder of Hannah Clark and her three children in Queensland. The parliament has, you know, galvanised around this. There was a vigil here at Parliament House and politicians giving speeches and a minute silent and all of that. Obviously, you know, really shocked everybody, this incident. But it struck me, we're talking about, you know, ASIO and terrorism. If a terrorist had killed three people in the middle of a suburban street in Brisbane, there would have been a hell of a response. I think National Security Cabinet would have met. I met. I think premiers and prime ministers would have met. We don't have any level of response like that. There is a, it's a disjunction here, isn't there, between the seriousness of terrorism per se as compared to the seriousness of the response to domestic violence. This is really a fundamental problem, I reckon. It's huge. We've seen already evidence this week 
of the government taking it seriously. I think it needs to be elevated even further than that. I mean, they're clearly working in the right direction and you've got to give them credit for that, but it needs to be accelerated. And if it's not, I think it's a very, very dangerous sign. I think we're at a national emergency level. This is the moment to shift And I'm heartened by what I heard from Maurice Payne, who's the Minister for Women. She says nothing is off the table. She's working now with state and territory governments on perhaps law reform, resourcing all of it, and says Mm. nothing is off the table and nothing should be off the table. It needs a serious and emergency response. Labor's been pushing for perhaps a national domestic violence summit. Government hasn't committed to that. I'm agnostic about the form in which it takes. I mean, another talk fest doesn't necessarily give you results. But the fact is something has shifted in this country. Our Prime Minister now talks about this issue. It's not just uh, terror on the streets that we talk about. We now talk about what's going on in homes. 20 years ago, we didn't. 10 years ago, even, we didn't. Now we do. It started But this can't be the end of that road. It's got to be the beginning of that road. And I think that we need massive, massive changes. It starts from primary school, respectful relationships, the attitudes of boys, the way boys are gendered. It starts there and it ends, of course, in building a healthy and equal society. Because at the heart of this, I will say this, is that these cases are about men trying to own women. If that is where your head is at, then this is what we're going to see. And unless we change that, we're going to see more of this. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It does start with respectful relationships. There is money going into this, but more resources have to go into this. This has to be a national priority. Labor wants a Royal Commission. Rhett's Patrick has got his Senate Commission up into, you know, let's get the frontline people in to tell us what we need to do and what we need right now. Let's not sort of reinvent the wheel. But as Tanya Plibersek said this week, we know what needs to be done. We've had inquiry, inquiry after inquiry. We don't need the one that's uh, about to be held with Pauline Hanson, the deputy chair, for heaven's sake. We know what needs to be done. It needs to be uh, changes in our courts, more responsive in our courts, more protection for women and children through our court system. You know, 30,000 DVOs um, were breached in Queensland alone last year and weren't acted on. 30,000. We need emergency housing, but we need long-term housing options for women too, and we need um, better focus on the perpetrators of this violence at the time, the crucial time, when relationships are breaking up, when court cases are, are coming to the court. That's when we need vigilance around the men involved in this. We need to look at the pattern of behaviour, and if necessary, then we need action to be taken against the men before the violence is carried out. So we kind of know the solutions. It's a matter of a focused national response. Andrew Proben is the political editor at ABC News. Andrew, welcome to the party room. Lovely to be here again, Fran. We do love it. Hello, PK. Hello, Probes. Let's go to something that doesn't deserve such a high, happy voice and that's coronavirus. And while the government has said it's pandemic ready, awaiting on official declaration of a pandemic from the World Health Organization, the impact on the economy is still unfolding. And this week, a pretty significant statement, I reckon, from the Treasurer and the Prime Minister, where they said it's likely to have a significant impact, well, on the economy and the budget, and perhaps even their ability to deliver a budget surplus. Mm. There's great anxiety about this because 
The surplus is one story. It's, it is, um, I've described this week as a political bauble. To most people it means nothing, yeah. absolutely nothing. But it is it is politically a highly charged thing that they want to achieve because it's. Uh, we haven't had a government with a surplus for more than a decade and we've had lots of treasurers, lots of prime ministers who promised them but never have. But this has really thrown the economic situation to right wobbly because it's not just about the tourism sector, the education sector, obviously, that is highly reliant on uh, on Chinese people coming here both for, as tourists and students. It's having a lot of effect now in things like construction. Prefabricated homes now have a lot of parts that are created on a Chinese factory floor. That factory is not being... Uh, manned uh, because people have been told to stay at home or you don't have deliveries to the docks, then it's uh, it's massively problematic. And the construction sector is saying that within the next fortnight we will see uh, some probably big news and possibly things like job losses. Uh, Projects coming to a standstill. Projects coming to a standstill. They're worried about liquidated damages for these multi-million dollar projects. So this is major. As you say, it's supply chains right across retail as well. And we see the airlines. uh, Deloitte saying this is um, a bigger shock to the airline business than was 9-11, which is phenomenal if you put it that way. Uh, When I spoke to the Treasurer this week, I got a lot of feedback from listeners. They were pretty cranky at the notion that a government might sort of preference a surplus over trying to protect the economy and the businesses. And they're saying, look... Spend the surplus, send, spend it on new start so the people who don't have enough money in their pockets can at least get, you know, some kind of benefit and we can get things going. But the PM this week, Probe, said, you know, I'm quoting here, this is not a government that engages in extreme fiscal responses. Now, what we're describing is a fairly extreme situation. If there was a time mm. for an extreme fiscal response, which I think he means stimulating the economy... It's now. Yeah, isn't he, it? he said that in relation to calls last year, including from the Reserve Bank governor, that uh, there needed to be some infrastructure spending to get the economy ticking along. So that's the context in which he was saying it. But at the same time, no government, uh, Labor or Liberal, could allow people start losing their jobs uh, willy nilly without there being an effort to secure them. And that's the situation that we might find this government in, that it has no option but to spend money it doesn't actually have in the black, but it sends the budget uh, further into the red because the the sad lesson of the hard word, recession, is that once you do have people losing jobs, it's actually very hard to get them back. Probes, do you reckon that the Liberal Party might be regretting those back in the black mugs? Uh, n- n- I regret no I doubt, didn't get but- one. <laughs> oh, well, look, I, I was actually scouring. I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. I was scouring this joint just to find one mug that someone just might want. Just, just one. One pick for the one. telly. I wanted to hold it in the TV studio, but I couldn't find one. Um, look, will they regret it? Probably in a rhetorical sense, but in a strategic sense, it was central. Mm. So they had to. To the victory. It was central to the victory that this was all about economic uh, stewardship. Yes, there's an obsession, and as I said before, most people don't give a bugger about a surplus or not. Um, and quite frankly, it doesn't really mean much if you miss it by one or two billion dollars in an economic or financial sense. But yeah, look, it's embarrassing, and that's one of the reasons why we saw 
uh, Josh Frydenberg in that ex- rather excruciating uh, interview with Fran this week. And he's actually sitting in the same chair yeah, that I'm is. sitting in, um, saying, though, well, they can't take away return to balance. I mean, it was... Uh, it's a bit like, uh, yeah, it's a bit like, you know, thinking you'd get number one hit on the uh, on the charts and then you, you end up um, being beaten by Engelbert Humperdinck, you know, <laughs> which happened to the Beatles. <laughs> I love that you just did that. Um, Josh Frydenberg doesn't want to ever be compared to Wayne Swan, but uh, look, you know, or there Engelbert are Humperdinck. either no, no, no. because they've mocked Wayne Swan so much for promising and not delivering, uh, but uh, he's clearly been hit by some things that they didn't anticipate, whether they should have thought a bit more about the fact that these things can happen is the big question. Let's talk about something else which I think fits into the category of embarrassing, maybe even more than that, actually. That's the sports grant scandal, uh, you know, the, the colour coding probes. You broke that story. Uh, it roared back into play at the end of this political week and we're recording this on a Thursday morning. It will continue throughout the day and the weekend. The audit office provided some of the answers to questions they took on notice when the Senate inquiry met a couple of weeks back. They do this and then you get the answers in delay and, of course, it can create a few headaches. This new evidence brought the PM into the frame, which was exactly what Labor wanted. It turns out the Prime Minister's office had quite a few email back and forth uh, discussions with Bridget McKenzie's office throughout all of this. That was news and Labor really went on the attack on this, Andrew Proben. What do you make of it? I mean, is that a smoking gun? Um, as for smoking gun, I'm not sure, but it's quite clear that there was a lot of communication, as you say, 136 emails. Some of it is down to finding which pot of money would fund which project because something else happened this week and there was um, some documents were tabled uh, to this select committee about this program and uh, it's been heavily redacted, unlike these wonderful colour-coded... I have to uh, say, actually, I'm yeah, sitting in the yeah. studio with Andrew. He's got the colour-coded... Yeah. Right here. Lots of <laughs> the colour-coded... That's not what you prepared earlier. Yes. Something I prepared earlier. But um, these emails were, were released this week and they show the bureaucracy in somewhat of a panic well after the election going, well, look, the government's made all these promises what pot of money are these projects going to come out of? So the confusion that you saw as late as September last year trying to fix this almighty mess actually is largely reflective of what was happening before the election. So Scott Morrison, uh, his his office, was clearly trying to work out, well, which ones do we fund under here and there, which, again, it emphasises the deeply politically compromised nature of this program, that's the Community Sports Infrastructure Program, the female facilities and water safety stream, which is the one that had all of these, was meant to be for regional projects, but saw, you know, North Sydney Pool, of course. There was a regional infrastructure program. Yeah. That's been used to as a hollow log, the really. community um, infrastructure funds. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. And this is where this is where it gets really serious. Like for, a, for any government that, that says that we're being very careful with your money, mm. when you have a good look at it and you see the size of money going to um, politically difficult seats, it's rotten. Probes, Labor's calling this corrupt. There's the sports grants program that continues. I was speaking to Jackie Lambie this week to ask her whether she thought this was going to cut through with people, with voters. She said, to be honest, people she talks to aren't even listening. But, boy, she's clear about what she thinks and she wasn't holding back. I think he has a lot of explaining to do and he needs to come out and be honest. And I think you know when they're guilty when they're starting to do the the blaming game on the, the other party. 
You know, I think you're pretty much saying uh, I'm as guilty as hell here. Uh, what's the? Why doesn't he just come out and be honest? I mean, she's outraged and she's calling for a National Integrity Commission again. We'll come to that. But do you think this is going to ensnare the Prime Minister any further? In the end, I don't think it will. I, but I think it's very, very unflattering and it does do damage to both the, the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister's standing. I mean, he's going to have to um, cop that. Now, why? Um, well, I, I say why because the problem at the heart of all these funds is that great discretion was held by the minister or and ministers, whether it be in infrastructure, health, sports... And it's the use of this discretion that's problematic insofar as it it means that organisations like Sport Australia, who had hundreds of people assessing projects and assessing their merit, that work could be just dismissed by the, uh, the tick and flick of a biro. That's what was happening. But look, in the end, this was also a coalition government that was making decisions towards the end of the uh, very end of a term, thinking that it was his, it's its last Desperate times. Yeah, they thought they were going to spend measures. and run, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and also the spending and, and leaving the, the next government in trouble or having to, to fund them, but also trying to minimise their own losses. That's what it was all about and that's why it's so it's sort of grim when you look at the, the details. And it all points back, I think, in many ways to the National Integrity Commission or calls for a National Integrity Commission. Jackie Lambie and the crossbench and, and minor parties are working on a new bill Uh, They say one with teeth. Now, we haven't seen the government's bill yet. The government obviously has an alternative. But the big question is, would it deal with this kind of stuff, Andrew Proben? I mean, would it fundamentally deal with the kind of pork barrelling that goes on here? Could it do it? When it comes to the National Integrity Commission and the formulation for it, What's what we've seen in the last few weeks and last month or so with regards to the sports programs can harden the resolve of those in the Senate to ensure certain changes to what the government is planning. And that's where it becomes problematic. So there might be a long tail to this story in other aspects that we haven't quite explored. And probes, we don't know when we're going to get the government's National Integrity Commission outline that it's late. We haven't got it yet. I expect it's coming soon. But, you know, Stephen Charles QC has been around this place in the last week pointing out that this sports grant scandal would not be eligible for referral because it says quite clearly that the uh, the National Integrity Commission under the government's plan will only investigate criminal offences. And so it needs to be conduct that meets the relevant criminal threshold. This is not criminal behaviour we're talking about. This is ethical. But shouldn't something like this be referred to a National Integrity Commission if we get one? Surely. Uh, well, that's always going to be a matter of debate. And it, it was clear that from um, the interview with Jackie Lambie this week that that's what she wanted. But in politics, the dirty game of politics, uh, one one person's rubbery ethics is a, another person's crime, you know, <laughs> political crime. This is a place that's f- full of those sorts of political judgments, um, which uh, given the light of day and the full examination would make people wince uh, some of the pure political calculations behind these decisions. And we heard it from Sport Australia executives or the Australian Sporting Commission today saying, look, we did what we did. Uh, we did it ethically, thoroughly and with and looking at, at, at merit. But in the end, the minister had the discretion. Well, that's so they, right. And that's what, this is where it becomes problematic. I mean, you, would it have been, would it be referred unto the uh, Integrity Commission? No, it wouldn't. Probes. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. As always, a great guest in the program.
Good See on you. See you, Probes, your legend. Bye. See you, PK. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And PK, we've got an audio question this week. We love audio questions. This one's from Jenna. My question is, with all of this um, stuff about climate technology, transformation, roadmaps, blah, 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 what are the chances of Zali Steggall's proposal to have the Climate Council separate from the government set up, like that was successful in the UK and I've read that she wants to pretty much replicate that and push it forward or at least put it forward as a bill. What are the chances of like an independence bill like that getting through? Low? Low. (laughs) Generally private members' bills, I mean they're lucky if they get debated, let, you know, heard on the floor of the parliament, let alone passed, unless there is an agreement like I think the Karen Phelps Medivac bill ultimately was the one that got passed that time. But that's unusual, but all the parties came behind it. Yeah, I think it's unlikely. Labor hasn't trashed Steggall's proposal or anything. Personally, I think the notion of some kind of independent climate council to keep a reckoning and auditing of our emissions and the work that needs to be done and how we're going in meeting our targets is a great idea. So we may end up with something like that, but I doubt that it will be through Zali Steggall's bill as we've seen it. What, what do you think, PK? I think you're dead right. I think um, Labor particularly, well, they've been polite, but they don't really want to get behind uh, her bill. It's the, they, they But say is that because they don't want the Climate Commission or they want the glory themselves? bit of glory themselves and also they say it's up to the government to resolve this and it's about putting pressure on the government too. So I think, though, to give credit to Zali Stegall, she's managed to get a lot of traction from raising this, for putting forward this proposal and given she, you know, beat Tony Abbott on the basis of climate, she's been able to keep this issue elevated and I think she's been very successful doing that. Yeah, I mean, she's emerged with this as an independent with some standing, hasn't she, with some, you know, rigour. Um, this is a substantial bill she's put forward. Um, the BCA supports it. You know, people are coming on board to support this notion, but usually these private members' bills get caught up in the sort of the wrangling and the wedging and the power plays of the major parties. Is, is that fair enough? Yeah, it ain't going to happen. I think it's this, the short version of the answer, but uh, there's a lot of more water under the bridge on the climate change debate, Fran, as we will discuss probably next week and the week after and the week after. But for now, that's it from us. If you can't get enough of The Party Room, remember there's a bonus episode this week where we find out about the ABC's new podcast, The 11th, which is all about the sacking of Gough Whitlam on November the 11th, 1975. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do check it out, The 11th. Until we meet again in The Party Room, see you, PK. See you, Fran. Well, may we say... What do you really know about the 11th of November, 1975? Because nothing will save the Governor-General. The day Gough Whitlam was ousted from power by the Queen's representative in Australia. The 11th, a gripping new ABC podcast that uncovers the murky events behind one of the most famous chapters in Australian political history. The ordinary punter in the street had no idea what was going on. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.